And we are live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, today's episode of the Survival Podcast, 3082, I believe, if I have the number right. And uh, today we're going to talk about things that I believe that we should teach kids uh, that, that government schools never will. For those that are new to me, I don't use the term public school. I just don't, because I don't believe that the school system that we have today that we call public education is a public school system. It's a government school system. It's run by government. It's paid for by government. And the public's not allowed to go there. If it was a public institution, then certainly the parent of the child going to that school would be able to say, I want to go and sit down in the back of the classroom and listen to what you're telling my kid with nobody getting in the way of it. That's not how it works. When you go to a privately owned supermarket, that's a public space. Anybody can go there. Uh, they have certain rules that you have to follow while you're there, etc. cetera. Uh, but it is open to the public. Our school systems are not open to the public. And I know when I say that, people are like, but what about people who would go in and kidnap kids or something like that? Like I said, parents, etc. knowing who you are to come in, that's, that's something fine with the public domain. But the school system is run by the government, paid for by the government, controlled by the government. The agenda is set by the government. So it is a government school. That said... Today is not an episode of let's bash government schools or let's bash public uh, education or let's bash teachers or things like that. I'm sure a little bit of it will happen. But these are actually things that I was just having a discussion about with my wife who helped me put this list together. It started out as 10 and it grew to 15. Uh, things that I think we should be teaching children. And it's not, hey, we should teach them in our public schools. It's more, or our government schools, it's more... They never will. And you have to ask yourself, since these things, and I think you'll agree with me as you look at this, are incredibly valuable, why won't they? Why won't they teach these things? Why wouldn't a public school, if, if that's the word you like, or government school, the word I like, why wouldn't they teach, my first item on the list we'll get to in just a second, is negotiation. Why wouldn't you teach negotiation? It's such a valuable skill. It can literally change your income bracket faster, quicker, and easier than the vaulted college education. The person who knows how to negotiate, now let's just go into it. That's my first skill. We'll just dive right in today, guys. My first skill is negotiation. Let's think about it this way. I teach you when you're, say, about 14, I start just a little bit of your educational pathway being on negotiation, how to negotiate. I teach you how, when even when your parents say, hey, I'm going to give you an allowance of X dollars, to, to, to turn it into Y dollars, X plus one, let's say, by, I don't know, doing a little extra work before you're asked to, and then pointing it out and suggesting that maybe you're more valuable than you are. You either get the, the money or you don't, but you learn the skill set. And by teaching that negotiation, let's say by the time you're 18, 19 years old, you go off into the world uh, because we actually live in a place where adults act like adults and stand up and take care of themselves instead of living at home or living off family money and government money and borrowed money for the next six years in an institution of higher learning. You're actually going off and doing things. And even if you are going on with your uh, education, you're still like earning a living, paying your bills, buying stuff like a car. So now knowing how to negotiate, you walk into a car dealership and you negotiate. 
And your car payment goes from, I don't know, $450 a month to $400 a month. That's probably too much for you to be spending at that age. But let's just say it's $50. Bucks. Now, if you can't negotiate $50 bucks in the cost of an automobile off of the initial cost that they give you when you walk in the door, you don't know how to negotiate. I've never had trouble doing that. That might mean I buy a different car than I want or go to a different dealership or buy a different brand, but I can always do that. That's $600 a year, folks, because I taught you that skill. That's not that much, Jack. What if you had a degree in bullshit, whatever, you know? $600. Bucks. What is $600? Bucks? It's half, halfway enough money to invest annually, starting at the age of 20, to retire with about $3 million in the most conservative, you know, Roth IRA type investments you could have. That's what it is. It's $3 million if you channel it properly. I'm not, we're on negotiation on investing right now, so I'm not saying you would. I'm saying that's what the potential is from that one skill for that one thing. Now let's take it into jobs. I've gone into jobs. This is what actually kicked this whole list off. Somebody posted a, a meme, and it said something to the effect, it was some pablum puking bullshit, honestly, guys. It said something like, if this, everybody wants to know, because they're talking about job advertisements here, if the, the salary is so competitive, why don't you just tell us what it is? Because it is competitive. It's not competitive to get you. It's competitive as to how much I'll pay you. That's when I, when I put out a job listing back when I was still running companies and I hired people. And I put competitive salary. I meant it can be a really good salary. I want you to come in here and tell me how much I should pay you. So I've, I've been offered jobs before and they're like, yeah, we're going to pay, let's say way back in the day, 40 grand a year. And I go, no, not if you want me to work for you. And they're like, I mean, you literally see like deer, and it doesn't always work, but like you see deer in the headlights when you tell somebody that's interviewing you for a job, not if you want me to work for you, it's not. And, and I'll, I'll cut right to the chase at that point and say, so here's what I want to know. Is there a better job you can offer me that pays better, or do you have the flexibility to pay me more for this one? Because if you don't, To save both of us time, we should cease this interview right now, and I should go look for a job that pays me what I'm worth. Now, people are scared shitless to talk like that. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. About half the time, they're going to shit more money. The other half the time, they're going to say, see you. And you know what you should do? We'll get to this later with another skill we need to teach people. You should walk out of that place. If you really are being underpaid, you shouldn't take the job. The thing with negotiation is the most power you will ever have with an employer is the day before they make you an offer. We should teach that because it's the truth. Now, if you can get an extra $10,000 a year on average across your career, right? Okay, that's that's 10 grand a year. 10 years is 100 grand, okay? If you're going to work 30 years, that's $300,000 that you just put in a person's pocket by teaching them that skill of negotiation, it should be way more. It should be way more. And it will be over time because people that are good negotiators get better opportunities inside corporations that they work for, outside corporations when they go work for themselves, and they move up faster and move laterally across from company A to company B quicker when they know how to negotiate. As soon as you negotiate and you do it right the first time, you, you have it's, it's a switch. It's one of many switches that go on in a human's life. 
It's like moving to entrepreneur is a switch. Learning negotiation is a switch. You can never unlearn it. You now know the power you have. It's another skill we'll get to in just a bit. But negotiation. If we're not going to teach negotiation in our school, let's put it this way. I personally feel, I didn't say this all needed to be in public schools or I expected it or I said they would never do it, but personally this one alone is a deal breaker for me. It's a deal breaker for me. If you're not going to teach my children and at this point my grandchildren how to negotiate, you're not going to get access to them. It's one of the most valuable skill sets a human being can develop, and you're going to ignore it and talk about preparing them from the future. Sorry, new, no, new. No. And most people listening to my voice right now that are grown-ass adults, you probably need to bump up on this one yourself. I'm going to say about almost everybody listening to this today, you're going to be able to find somewhere between five and seven of these that either you don't know or you do know, but you know you need to know better. And focus on them because you can only teach what you know. Next up, monetary literacy. Now, I'm not talking about investing. Okay? I'm not talking about leverage. We're actually going to talk about some of those things in a little bit. In fact, right away. I'm just talking about underlying monetary literacy. What is money? Where does it come from? What's the difference between money and currency? The dollar is not money. It's currency. Money is money. Currency is currency. Currency is the means of exchange. Money is the underlying value that a currency can be built upon. At one time, the dollar's underlying value was gold. That's how it worked. Like There was gold that backed the dollar. I'm not saying it was a perfect system. But what it was, was a legitimate system. A system can be legitimate and not perfect. In fact, I have yet to see a perfect system. Right? Now, a system can even fail miserably measured against perfection. Like, if perfection's a 100 and we can get to a 90, that's pretty good. You can have a system that gets to a 70. And it's, in my opinion, 70 is a failing grade. But it's still legitimate and it still works. And everybody can understand the rules of a 70. If you have a system that could be a 90, Even mediocrely, like a gold standard could be a 70, and you're at a 20 like we are right now, you have a failed system. That's the fiat money system. Now, here's the interesting thing. Back when gold backed the dollar, about middle school, so this is early 1900s still, late 1800s, so about what we call middle school. They didn't call it that then. They had mostly still one-room classrooms. But it was about that age you'd be in like 7th, 8th grade. They actually taught the monetary system. They actually explained gold backing the dollar. And by the way, since people were financially literate at the time, you probably knew it anyway because your parents talked about it. Your dad explained to you what that, where that $5 bill came from and why it could buy so much at the time because there was $5 worth of gold at the other end of it. So the currency was based on gold. The dollar was not money. The dollar was a currency. It was a ledger that kept accounting for the money behind the scenes. Why wouldn't you teach that today? Because what backs the money today? Don't say nothing. Don't say government promises. Right? Don't don't fall into the trap. Don't just say, it's fiat! Right? No. What, and this is if you don't know the answer to this, this is one of yours to put on your list to brush up on. What backs the dollar today? Don't say petroleum. Can be used to buy petroleum. That's just a category, 
uh, a characteristic of a currency. It strengthens it. And if you're struggling with it being the dollar, change it into something else. And then Tom got it. It's not oil. Oil is a commodity paid for with a currency. The backing of the dollar and the backing of all Western currencies, and most currencies in the world today, is debt. It's debt. So if you knew that your money, what you called money, wasn't really money, it was based on debt and it was currency. And the money behind the scene, the man behind the curtain, was using debt as money to back a currency. Then you would immediately know, wow, this is usurious as shit. This is a predatory system. You would immediately, once you had enough total knowledge, even if when you got this knowledge you didn't know it. Well, somebody explained this to you when you were 14 and you didn't have enough context yet, but I planted that seed. At some point... As you came up in the world and you looked around at all the problems, you'd say, wait a minute. This so-called money is actually currency. And this currency's money is mortgaging the future of myself, my children, and my grandchildren before they're born. Well, of course they're not going to teach that. And uh, Emily says, all, all questions and things for me to comment on, most I'll do at the end, but I'm going to do this one right now. Emily says, isn't debt a promise of repayment? That's exactly what it is. They are backing the currency with a money, and the money is a promise of repayment by a person that didn't enter into the agreement in the first place. They're making the agreement on your behalf. In other words, we don't have money backing our currency. Debt cannot be money. Debt cannot be money. So what is the money? What can be a money? That's a great point, Emily. I don't know if you know the point you made, but boy, it's a good one. What can be money? Labor. Human labor. Human life force. Human energy can be money. It's concrete. It's finite. You're born and then you die. In the middle is your life force. That is money. That is a system that cannot be artificially inflated It has an intrinsic value, and the money is actually backed by human labor in the form of debt. Or I should say the currency is. Now, why would you teach that? Doesn't that seem like a great thing to teach kids? Well, as soon as you pull on that thread, that's where it goes. Thank you, Emily. I didn't know you were going to help me get there. I appreciate that. But that's, that's where I was going with this. It's not even debt. On the balance sheet, here is a, a note of owed Money that's not money. It's currency. It's denominated in dollars or yuan or yen or whatever the hell, or rupees or whatever the hell it is. But what underlies it? So you have a currency backing a currency, and the underlying money that backs both is a human being. So the, the loons that think you can figure out how much your birth certificate's worth by entering a number on a website, they are loons. They're wrong, but they're right in the theory versus the practice. Right? They don't individually mortgage you. They just mortgage everybody. Now think about that. It leads you right. It leads you directly. It leads you directly to what the solution is. Fix the money. Not fix the currency. Fix the money. I'm not going to get into a Bitcoin discussion. 
There's other ways to fix the money. Again, you would get a score on the scale of how close to perfect are you. I personally think you'd get the highest score right now from Bitcoin. But even gold would push it way up. And there's a lot of other things we could use. But human life force? It's a 20 out of 100 for everybody except the people that get to print it on demand. That's why they wouldn't teach it to you. Next on the list. How to pay less in taxes. Now, I don't think you're going to have to think real hard about why they wouldn't teach this. But I want you to think back to how they sell college to people. And I want to be clear again for those that are new to me. I am not a college hater. I hate how the college system has been artificially inflated through the use of debt and easy money, easy loans, to people who don't understand what they're borrowing and are being sold a fictitious dream. I think there's a lot of things that if you're talented and that's the thing you want to pursue, that college, i.e. university, makes sense. But I would say more than 50% of the people that go to college shouldn't. And the way we sell those people on promising their life force into the foreseeable future to inflate the currency is saying you'll make more money. You'll make more money. Now, the best way to make more money is whatever income you have, based on your talent and your decisions in life, is what you're going to have. Some people are never going to make $100,000 a year. Some people are going to look at $100,000 a year and say what I would say to a salary that pays that. Not if you want to hire me. It doesn't matter. Just like buying a house, everybody has a budget. Everybody has a maximum income potential for what they're willing to do with their life force. And what risks they're willing to take, how, and how many skills they develop, etc. So you have a fixed income. Everybody has a fixed income. When you change it, because you say, Jack, you say as an entrepreneur you can change your income. I can. It's still fixed. I'm in touch with that reality. If I wanted 100 people working for me right now, I would have a lot more money. I don't want the headaches. I don't want to make that exchange. So my income is fixed by what I want. So is yours. So the number one way that we improve our overall wealth potential, because we still have to do something with the money, and oh, we're going to get there, Village. Oh, we're going to get there. But the number one way we can increase our wealth potential, so we have to have earned wealth, and then we can leverage wealth to increase wealth. Right? Simple. I know they don't teach it. I know that's hard to get your head around, but if you think about it that way, it's simple. You have to have a certain amount of wealth, value for value exchange that you commit to, That brings a certain amount of wealth under your control. Once you have that wealth under your control, you can leverage it through business, through investing, however you want to. And that, so that initial piece that you break off and pull into yourself with your labor, your time, your talent, etc., determines what your base rate is to leverage forward to grow. Now, since the amount that will come in is, is finite in of itself, the number one thing that most people can do to increase what that block of wealth is, is to reduce unnecessary outflow. That's it. Cut expenses. Cut expenses. Now, you're only going to cut your expense to eat so much. Right? Because if you don't eat, you'll die. So we can have a garden, we can grow our own food, uh, we can get smart, we can buy a boat. There's a lot of ways to cut the food bill, but there's going to be a food bill. And there's a finite end to how much I can cut the food bill. Yeah? Energy, housing, there's a bill. 
I'll go off grid. Well, you're going to put the money in up front and you hopefully prorate it over time. It will cost less than buying it from the grid. Probably can. But it still has a cost and you still need energy in some form to live a modern, happy, healthy lifestyle. What is the finite number of taxes you can cut? How low can you go? Well, the answer is zero. Taxes can be cut to zero. There's certain decisions you have to make to do it, but if you don't pay taxes at all legally, will you die? Will the quality of your life go down? Think of all the rich people that, quote, don't pay taxes. They've even proved they don't pay taxes. They get a hold of their tax return. Total tendered, zero. Do they die? Do they get sick? Does their life fall apart? Or are they better off by not paying taxes? You see where this goes. Of all the things you have to pay for in your life, you can divide them into luxuries and necessities. Right? Luxuries are things you want. Necessities are things you need. A tax is neither. A tax is theft. That's what makes it a theft. Since I don't want it and I don't need it, then and you're taking it from me, it's theft. So if we can teach people, here are the steps you take, no matter what you do, from garden variety employee to entrepreneur to pay less taxes, every tax dollar you don't pay adds to the block that you start with in building your debt, your wealth through leverage and makes you wealthier. Now, don't tell me that won't do more for a person than a four-year degree in freaking gender studies or whatever, or communications, or even something that's moderately useful but won't pay you better than if you didn't have it. Now, if you have a degree in engineering, that is a tool to leverage. If you have a degree in mathematics and you can actually use applied mathematics in a way that's valuable to people, that is a tool that can be leveraged. But a lot of degrees that are even, they will help you get a job. But if you can get a job making 56 grand a year with a degree, or you can go work for Walmart as a manager for 65, the degree did not increase your wealth. It might have made you have a better lifestyle, a better job, maybe a better career path. But it didn't directly increase the block size of the wealth origination block that you're going to leverage in your future through investment, reinvestment, etc. But every dollar... Every dollar that doesn't go to the tax man goes to that block. Now, you can piss it away. This is not budget analysis. This does not mean financial discipline. This is solely the potential to build the block that you build on top of. That's your financial foundation. Your income is your financial foundation. The bigger the foundation, what is that? When you, when, have you ever heard an architect talk about this? You want me to tell you how tall the building is going to be. Show me the hole that you're making for the building, and I'll tell you how big the building's going to be. See how simple that is? That's your fa Now, why wouldn't they teach you that? If they really cared about you, and they wanted you to have more wealth and more control in your own life and be successful and be happy, wouldn't you teach people to build a bigger foundation so they can build a bigger skyscraper of wealth in their life? Well, you would. And to be fair to teachers, I think if they knew half the shit I'm telling you today, they would do it. If they could, which they can't, they'll get fired for it. Freaking teacher can tell a kid to change his gender when he's seven and not go to prison, let alone lose their job. But I guarantee you a teacher talking like I am today in a government school will get fired. So there you go. 
We should be teaching people how to pay less taxes, not just because tax is theft, but because it increases the foundation of wealth in their life so they can build larger wealth in their life long term. I also think we're going to go totally different here, not beating on the government directly anyway, maybe indirectly. We should be teaching people real nutritional science and real ways to cook food so that they're not living on Beyond Burger Whoppers. There is no case that can be made with real science that what the, the government now calls a plate, but the food pyramid, it's the same allocation, they just change the shape of it, is healthy for humans. A grain-based diet is not healthy for humans. We'll say it again. You can't scientifically show that a grain-based diet is healthy for humans. You can scientifically show that a all-natural, no-processed foods, vegan diet, I know you're shocked that I said the word, vegan diet, or more specifically, vegetarian diet, is healthier for people than what we call the standard American diet. And I don't mean Twinkies and Ho-Hos. The way your doctor tells you to eat is worse than a good, balanced, intentional vegetarian diet. I only say that so when I give you the next thing that you know I'm about to drop, a diet based on animal protein and fat is the healthiest diet for human beings. And I can scientifically demonstrate that. I'm sitting here doing it, by the way. All you got to do is go back to about 2015, 2016 and find a picture or a video of me. Especially one where I'm standing up and walking around where I can't hide it in the picture. I got pretty good at that. That's what made the difference. And there are there is person after person after person after person. If you look up Weight Watchers on YouTube, you see a whole bunch of paid shills to shill Weight Watchers. If you look up Ketogenics on YouTube, you see thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who are simply telling people what happened to them because it's so great. Across all the social media, you see the same thing. All of the programs, all of the things, counting, all that shit. You can't get somebody out there excited about it just because they did it that just wants other people to know. You know why? Because it doesn't fucking work. That's why. That's why. Because it doesn't work. Or it's a short-term, unsustainable thing. When I started doing keto, I had all kinds of concerned people tell me that it's not sustainable. And they didn't mean environmentally. Some of them did. We're not going to go there today. They meant that I couldn't continue to eat this way and live this way long-term. Well, that was 2018. It's 2022. I'm still here. I'm still so much better off than I was. And I was on the edge of killing myself. I was in full-blown metabolic syndrome, and I was eating close to the standard American diet. It wasn't that bad. I wasn't eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos and ice cream and, and potato chips. Not often, anyway. But if you get on board with learning about nutrition, you don't have to take my word for it. And one of the things you'll find is really interesting. I don't want to do a whole other show on this at some point. The Venn diagram that's being created between keto and cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, and regenerative agriculture and permaculture. Three worlds that look like they're very far apart. But I was talking about those with some friends that were over this weekend. Wherever the person gets on the ramp at in that area... You give them enough time and they start to come in and there's other things that overlap into this. They end up in the same space. Homeschooling. 
You get somebody tied into Bitcoin when they're 20, when they have a family at 26, 27, 28, kids are old enough to start going to school, you have a much higher propensity for that person to be a homeschooler. The Venn diagram is very, very, very interesting. But we need to teach nutrition, and we need to teach people how to cook, how to actually make food taste good, because you've been seduced by a system designed to make you fat, sick, and lazy, and apathetic. And by the way, men, destroy your testosterone levels. Women, jack up your estrogen levels to an unhealthy state. Totally fuck up your, your insulin levels. And that's why there's a, there's a freaking new dialysis clinic on every street corner every other day. That's why we're in a, a state of like chronic kidney failure epidemic in this country because of that right there. And I don't think they like said that as a let's figure out how to destroy the human body. I think as they destroyed the human body, it became profitable, and then you defend your profit model. Even if you're not sure exactly what you're doing, though I think many of them do. And so what we've been convinced is that additives and sugar are flavor. When you cook, this is the magic of cooking. Cooking is not taking a box out, putting it in a microwave. Cooking is not taking out some packets, putting them in a pot, adding water, stirring and heating it up. Cooking is starting out with base food and making it. When you do that, you know what's in it. And that's not just a security measure. Like, I don't have some like five-syllabolic word that I don't understand as a chemical in my food. It's that if you do put something in there, like a cup of sugar, you go, wow, that's a lot of sugar. It's a knowledge base as well. Next up, and this is something I promise you, this will never be taught by any government entity anywhere, not just school. Self-ownership. We need to teach children. Johnny, you are the captain of the meat body bone ship that is Johnny. You own yourself. Now, for parents, this is a bit of a struggle because I don't necessarily want to tell five-year-old Johnny who's throwing a temper tantrum, you own yourself. But I do. And this is how I explain it once a kid's old enough to understand it and have the conversation. One day I'm going to put you in behind the wheel of a car. And you're going to drive it. And when you drive that car with just a tiny little push by your foot, you're going to be able to take a multi-thousand-pound vehicle and travel 100 miles an hour or more. And if you do something stupid, you can harm yourself and others. So before we let you drive the car, don't you think it's a good idea that we teach you how the car works, we teach you how to drive the car, and we make sure that you're mature enough to make good judgment so you don't drive the car 100 miles an hour and kill 20 people and have to live with that for the rest of your life? And Johnny's head will go up and down. Okay, Johnny, the meat and bone neurological ship that is Johnny is the, one, is the thing that's capable of doing that with a car or a gun or a knife or simply by making the wrong decision. You own yourself. You are the captain of the ship that is Johnny. Absolutely. But since it's such a huge responsibility as your parent your mentor, your grandparent, your uncle, whatever. My job is to help so that at the point where you get complete control of the ship, you get the final keys and title and you go out the door and do whatever you want, because it's going to happen whether I want it to or not. No matter what anybody says, you're going to get to that point where you're making all your own decisions. There would be a good idea that we trained you to use that ship accurately and properly. 
Now, if you're a parent, what I just said makes perfect sense to you. If you're a teacher, it probably does too, and you're asking yourself why you don't teach that. And uh, Stymie says, always teach the brake pedal first. Not to mention, though, you can cause harm with the brake pedal too, can't you? Right? We have to teach the, the, the consequences of the actions. Why don't we get to teach that? Well, think of like the state. See like a state. That's a great book, by the way, Seeing Like a State. Look it up. Read that book. Um, if you're the state, this is a horrible thing. Everything in the state is designed around pushing every action of human beings to be measurable and controllable and regulated and licensable. Now, you might think that's just so they can control you. No, it's because anybody in any profession over time seeks to optimize their profession to maximum reward. So what is the profession of the state? And I know some of you, because you're mad and you have animosity and all, you're going to say something like, oppression, control, etc. No, what is the profession? A profession is a way by which you earn an income. It's how you generate your revenue model. That's your profession. So what is the profession of the state? The, prof the profession of the state is, I'll give it to you and see if anybody comes up with it in the chat. Blank farming. The profession of the state is blank farming. Give a couple seconds there to see if anybody comes up with it. So there's people out in the audio-only version screaming right now. There it is. There it is. Tom, insider, he knows, right? It's not problem farming. It's not, it, And revenue would be another word for it. But Tom got it first. Tax farming. That is, that is the purpose, money farming through taxation, right? So a lot of people are getting it now. They're using different terms. Uh, Ecomouse is energy farming, yes. But how does this, this, the state harvest energy? What energy are they harvesting? The sun's or yours? They're harvesting your life force. And how do they do that? Taxation. So if you teach somebody that they own themselves... That's kind of bad when your entire revenue model is based on optimization of tax farming because licensing, regulating, tracking, tracing, controlling, getting people to report what they do, getting people to divest themselves of privacy is exactly how you optimize your tax farm model. So they're never going to teach self-ownership. Self-ownership leads people to do a lot of the other things that we're talking about today. A lot of things that I'm... It's, it's kind of a keystone... Thing It's kind of like, um, it creates, the word I guess I would use in ecology would be a trophic cascade. So a trophic cascade in ecology is we take this one little change, and it has this massive result. For instance, when they reintroduced the wolf into the Yellowstone region, it literally changed the shape of the rivers. Over time, it's a real interesting thing. You can look at it for yourself. I, I don't have time to go through it all today, but it had to do with the wolves hunting the large animals like the elk and the buffalo that previously hadn't been hunting, and them changing their behavior. So this one thing that seemed quite small changed the entire ecology. Self ownership is a trophic cascade within the human experience. Once I know that I own myself, I'm actually going to come to a lot of these other conclusions on my own, or they're going to start a research paradigm that's going to result in figuring them out. It's probably the most important thing you can teach somebody is that they own themselves. It also is the huge factor in doing something that people love to bitch about but not solve. It, it, is, it is the death of blame shifting. 
It's the death of excuse making. If you own yourself, you don't get the blame shift. And you don't get to make excuses. Unless you're a politician, I guess. And then the next thing we need to work on, I think, teaching our young people is the concept of value-to-value exchange. You're not going to be good at negotiating without understanding this. But value-for-value exchange has to do with understanding how to receive value, but also has an understanding of how to give value. For instance, some people will throw me a super chat while we're doing this today. Because they'll say, you know, that's pretty valuable. I'm going to give Jack five bucks or ten bucks or a dollar or whatever. And I appreciate it. Well, you recognize value, so you tendered value. Now, what actually makes that important is because it, it moves people off of the idea of what can I get. And a big part of why we have a welfare state today is because people think the government just has money and I should get as much as I can. And people are like, but Jack, you're the guy that says, I'll take every damn thing I can get till I get my taxes broken to zero. Of course I will. I'm just getting back my shit, though. They took my stuff, and I'm totally willing to pay for what I want to use. I have, I have very little problem with gas taxes as long as they're used appropriately. They're often you know they're often stolen into other things, but I don't mind paying to drive on a road. I choose to drive on the road. If the road is in reasonable repair and gets me where I want to go, I'm happy to pay for it. I'll pay the state. I'll pay Jim's roads. I don't care. I'll pay for the thing that I use, right? It's a real simple thing to understand. But when it comes to value for value exchange, we start thinking we're entitled. So this whole entitlement attitude, it can exist if you explain value to value exchange and it's actually understood by the mind on the other end of the explanation. I can't be entitled if I understand value to value. Or I actually can use entitled properly. That's a better way to put it. See, I don't have a problem with someone feeling entitled, if they are. If you say to me, Jack, I want to, let's say I'm a coder, and I say, okay, and you write me a spec, and you say, I want you to code this thing, and I want it to do these things, here's the delivery timeline and all, we agree to it, we both sign the contract, and you give me a down payment, and I lay down the code, and I deliver the code, and I demonstrate that it functions as per your document. It doesn't do everything you wanted, but you didn't put it in the document. We agreed to this. If you want more, you have to pay more. That's value for value exchange. Am I not entitled to be compensated as we agreed upon by contract? Yes, I am. So the problem is we've, once again, we've destroyed, I mean, vocabulary would be a good thing to add to this. Actual vocabulary, not just memorizing some shit that somebody tells you, but what does the word really mean? Entitled doesn't mean I deserve something for nothing. That's actually the, it's the wrong word. We use the wrong word for the wrong thing, and then we wonder why we're confused as a species. Entitled means I've done the shit that needs to be done to get the thing that I was promised or agreed upon, and now you should give it to me, because I did what I promised. Likewise, if I didn't deliver, I am not entitled to the consideration. That's value for value shit. You can't have people going, hey, give me, give me, give me free shit. If they understand value for value. In fact, they wouldn't want it. Because they would realize that whenever you take free shit, first, it's not free. Second, it will reduce drastically the capacity for you to have more. It is the stupidest thing you can do if you want to get ahead. Is to, is to be, you know, have the entitlement attitude. We need a new word for that attitude, though. It's not an entitlement attitude. If we're using the word entitlement right, 
When people talk about cutting entitlements, they get all upset. And they say, well, so what about Social Security? What about Social Security? People paid in their whole life. It is an entitlement. Or they'll say it's not an entitlement. It shouldn't be cut. Well, first of all, it shouldn't be cut because the government stole your money and you should get it back. But it is an entitlement. You are entitled to it. Welfare is what's not an entitlement. So we use entitlement to mean welfare. And it's not. It's freaking leechism is what it is. Moving on. Basic business operations. I don't care if you want to be an entrepreneur or not. I'm actually separating this from entrepreneurship. Basic business operations is how a company is run. What actually makes a company viable? How does a company generate enough value so that it can have value for value exchange? Where does a company's money come from? How do you manage a payroll? I mean, this might seem really high level, like some kind of MBA course or something. This could be taught to the average person of the average intelligence in about four one-hour classes. So you could have some larger subject matter within a school, and you know, one week you cover basic business operations. And again, I don't care if you want to be a scientist or an engineer or a freaking NASA uh, rocket scientist or a math teacher or anybody. I don't care if you want to be a housewife or a house husband. You should understand basic business operations because it would solve a lot of the bullshit. And this is why the state won't ever teach it to you. You can't have the kind of class warfare we do today. I'm not saying no class warfare. You can't have it to the peak that it is today if the entire population in general understands basic business operations. I've hired people, and it became really clear to me not long after I hired them, they thought, because I owned a company, the company just had money. We just have money. It's just there. They didn't understand, like, there's a revenue model, right? And if we don't make enough revenue, and if we're not mindful of our expenses, you're fucking fired because I'm going to fire you before I fire myself. Why? Because I'm more important to me than you are. You're not my son or my daughter or my wife. Like, those are, you know, or my grandchildren. or Those people are more important to me than me. You are an employee. You are someone I am paying to do a thing. I don't hate you. I don't dislike you. I'm not going to abuse you. But you're as valuable to me as the things you can do for me. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this relationship. If I hire you, that doesn't mean you would come hang out with me on Saturdays. Very rare person that I would do both with. Okay? And this is how every employer thinks, because if you don't, you are on a direct path to dun, 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 bankruptcy. That's where you're going. In the words of Machiavelli, those who are kind when they should be cruel will be cruel when they should be kind. If you understand basic business operations, you're a better employee. You're more conscious about what you're doing with your time and your value for value exchange. You're more conscious about, well, the way I get a raise is to increase revenue or decrease expenses from my employer and then demonstrate to them that I've done that and use that as justification to get my raise. Now you're in a negotiation because you understand company operations. But you also understand, I have because I did this once, I saved the company $300,000 a year recurring on my unit that they could then apportion across a national company. They gave me a $1 an hour raise and I quit. Why? I understood value for value, and I, I took that, and, and instead of being jaded and angry, I don't hate this company, I learned a lot, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that if I didn't work for them. 
That's just how their operations work. So I took that and other accomplishments I had. I put that on a thing called a freaking resume, and I sent it out to other companies. And one of the companies said, holy shit, maybe he can do that for us. So then I went in, and they said, we'll explain how you did this. And specifically, since I wasn't giving secret sauce because it wasn't directly doable by them, they had to do other things to make it work, I explained exactly what I did. And they basically said, and when can you start? And I said, how much can you pay? We're back to negotiation. But that's understanding business operations. You'll stop looking at the person driving the Corvette with disdain and start saying good for him the day you understand basic business operations. You'll either build a business or realize, I don't want to do all that, and you'll be a better employee. So everybody, everybody should learn this. Now, this isn't good if you're the state. If you see like the state, this is a problem for you. Because the state thrives on problems. Solutions are not good for states. Solutions result in populist unity. People getting along. People going, hey, you know what, Bill? You and I have some disagreements, but basically we're the same, you and I. We live on the same street. Our kids go to the same schools. Our, you know, our kids play together. You're a different color than me. I don't care. You're a different sex than me. I don't care. Right? In the end, we've, we're all right, you and I. You run a company, I work for a company. We both made a choice. I know what you do is hard, and you know what I do comes with sacrifice. We're okay with each other. And then you go, so why is it, why aren't things better? And the two of you go and point at the state, i.e. the bureaucrats and politicians, and go, you are the problem. Now, you wouldn't want that. If you were the bureaucrat or the politician, you want Bill and Tom or Susan and Frank arguing that each other is the problem. I know it doesn't seem directly attributable to business operations, but it is finance and economics is the chief way that they divide people in society today. Because our system of governance is economic, okay? We are governed by economics far more than the direct apparatus of the state. And I'm going to prove it to you. You worry more about your electric bill than who is president. No matter how bad Brandon is, in the end, you're more worried about when that envelope comes and you open it up and look at it, what that number is on the electric bill, than what Brandon did today. If you're sane anyway. Right? Because economics is a be the best system of control ever devised. And our system of economics is fascist. I know fascism is where you put you know, people in gas chambers or whatever. And that's just something a Nazi government, a fascist government did. Our economic system is fascist. And fascism is a system that's neither classically socialist nor laissez-faire capitalist. This is textbook, guys. This is what they don't teach you in school. right? So it's neither a free market nor a fully socialist market. Hmm, what's that sound like? Where... Industry and government collaborate and work together and view the differences between the classes as a leverage point that is advantageous to the goals of the state and industry. Welcome to the fascist states of America governed by economics more than bureaucracy. That's what you have. So they seek to govern you through economics and therefore they have to have a point, a leverage point, to push against you and your neighbor, to put you at opposition to each other, or at least in the same tribe in opposition to another tribe, to meet the definition of fascism. 
leveraging the differences between the classes. And today it's not just classes, it's races, it's sexes. It's every division point you can make. Because if you can divide people into these two tribes, Democrats and Republicans, okay, great. But if then we can split the Republicans into white people and black people and the Democrats into white people and black people, we're even better. And if we can split again into poor Republicans and poor Democrats versus rich Democrats and rich Republicans, and they hate each other but they love each other because they're, and they're confused, this is the same strategy that you employ as a permaculturist in your garden. Did I just take a left turn that hurt your head? Hear me out. So the best way that I can combat pests in my garden is to confuse them. I put lots of smells. I don't plant all corn. I plant some corn, plant some beans, plant some carrots, plant some peas, plant some herbs, plant some flowers I can't even eat. I create all these different sites and smells, and the pest is confused. And when the predator comes, when the lion comes from the wildebeest, and the wildebeest are all in a herd... And they all know how to function, and there's an obvious route of escape. The wildebeest have a reasonable chance of escape. If there's one special wildebeest who doesn't follow the system that the wildebeest have developed because he's confused, chomp. What if the lions walked in, and all the wildebeests were more concerned about fighting with each other than they were the lions? And they were all trying to figure out what place in the heart. They had no cohesion. Well, the lions just walk in and go, I'm going to eat. It's like when you go to the seafood place and you pick your lobster, right? The lion walks in and goes, I'm going to eat him. And the other lion's like, I want to eat him. And the, hey, you know what? It takes two of us to pull one down. Why don't we go kill this one? I'll eat him. And we'll go kill that one. And you eat him. Oh, okay. That's how it would work. That's how it works in your garden. This is your government using a permaculture principle for evil. Divide and confuse so that the predator can take the prey. That's exactly what's going on. It's exactly what's going on. And it, it really all comes from basic business operations and not understanding how a business runs. Because since economics are the linchpin of control, you make sure people do not understand the economics. They don't have monetary literacy. Right? They don't understand value for value exchange, and they don't know how a company works. I could teach you all of that in a week or two, in a one-hour-a-day thing. I pretty much have over the years. And once you understand that, even if you don't use it, you comprehend it, and then this... this it's like teaching somebody a jiu-jitsu move, right? Because we're going to self-defense next. Step behind, push, push the body to the ground, counter. Right. And if you know how to do that, I mean, the most basic behind-leg-sweep pushover, right? And a person's not familiar with it. You just walk up, walk past a person, and, go, and they're on the ground. What happens as soon as I teach them the tech, so both of you know the technique and the counter? Well, now we're grappling, right? This is... This is basic business operations. Once people understand basic business operations, self-ownership, value-for-value exchange, and have monetary literacy, all the tricks, they don't work so easily anymore. At least you can defend yourself mentally. Now let's talk about defending yourself physically. We have a, just an amazing amount of bullying in our schools. And we have taught victims that they are wrong for defending themselves. We care more 
when Johnny finally has had enough, balls up his fist, and takes Timmy, who has been tormenting him for multiple years in school, but he hasn't actually beat him up. He's just tormented him. And Johnny's finally had enough of Timmy, and he sucker punches Timmy in the frickin' nose and breaks his frickin' bloodies him. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's no way that teachers have not observed the behavior of Timmy abusing Johnny. They know it happened, but he's, but he's the one to hit. He's still wrong. Uh-uh, wrong. Now, it would have been much better if Johnny went to jiu-jitsu and learned red light, green light, and control, basic systems of self-defense within jiu-jitsu, and didn't break Timmy's arm, but put his ass in an arm bar until, because I don't care if you've done it or not, you'll figure out tapping out, okay? And said, hey, cut the shit and leave me alone. Now, here's the thing. If that happened, and like when I was in school and something like that went down, you know what happened? It was usually was in gym class. That's where guys kind of blew their temper at each other. All right, get up. Shake hands. Is it over? This is the coach talking. Is it over or do I need to do something? And we didn't have kids come back in and shoot up a school back then either, did we? You don't think the two are related. That means the fluoride in your water is working. Get a fucking filter or get a different source of water. Right. That means your programming is working. You need to change it. We need to teach our children how to defend themselves, and if you have a society that knows how to defend itself, there'll be less conflict, not more. Because what happens when Johnny armbars Timmy, and a teacher goes, Timmy, you've been a little dick for a long time, and you finally got your ass handed to you, didn't you? Sit down and leave him alone. There's a lot of other Timmies that go, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should like not bother Johnny's no more. And what's the what's the converse? So my sister-in-law's a teacher, and she's in, I think she's teaching fourth grade, and she said all the girls want to do with each other is fist fight. By not allowing self-defense, we've created more violence. Same reason everybody's so polite at a gun range, guys. Real simple, if, if there's always the potential that I could end up on the wrong side, I'm going to think about my actions, especially if I understand things like self-ownership, value for value exchange, etc., stacked on top of all this. But we need to teach people. We need to teach people how to defend themselves. And when it's proper to defend yourself and when it's not. This actually also reduces bullying. If you've ever noticed... If you have two people that are martial artists in a school, they've actually been trained. They know how to defend themselves. If you see them in combat, it's like at wrestling. They don't go start shit with each other. When you know, when you know how to defend yourself, unless you have a sick, demand, like karate kid style Reese teacher, a bad sensei, there's no bad students, only bad senseis then the knowledge of defense reduces aggression. It doesn't increase it. So if you actually want to solve the problem, you teach people to defend themselves. And you'd also teach people in self-defense, there's defense of self and there's defense of others. And they go hand in hand. If you're attacking someone next to me who's weaker than me and weaker than you, and I don't defend him, who will defend me when the attacker is stronger than me? If I don't set the example. 
So when Johnny's attacking Timmy, and Jack puts Timmy in a chokehold and says, you're going to leave him alone or we're going to go to sleep. Again, there's a whole lot of Timmy's going, oh shit. Oh shit. And if there's more Jacks and Johnny's than there are, are Timmy's, all the Timmy's get their shit in order. This is how law enforcement works. I'm afraid the cops will throw me in prison and I'll actually have to stay there so I'm not going to commit this crime or I'm going to commit less crimes and be more careful when I do it and I'm even going to be careful of what kind of crime I commit because the worse the crime, the worse the punishment. Basic, simple, but that's not good for a divided society, is it? When everybody has everybody's back, there's less problems, less problems, less need of the state. So, of course, we're not going to teach you that. How about networking? Networking, by the way, friends, is not having friends. A lot of times the most popular kid in a school or the most popular person in any organization is not a good networker. That's not being a networker. Because today you can be popular because of your hair or your tits or your butt or how many followers you have on Instagram or the car you drive. And that's always been the case. There's just different things that do it today. There's a lot of reasons a person can be popular today. That's not networking. Networking is when you have enough social capital that people will help you because they know you will help them. Networking is where you go, I don't have this solution, but Bill does. And I know Bill. So, Tom, I will introduce you to Bill. That's networking. Did you learn that in school? No, you didn't. Anybody that learned that in school, tell me I'm wrong right now. Anybody you, you were taught... And I don't mean like some entrepreneurial curriculum in college. K-12, you were taught what I just said to you. That networking is that. And if you did, go find that teacher who risked their career for you and give them a hug. But I bet no one's going to say it. No one's going to say they were taught that. That's what networking is. Networking is building contacts to the point that you. it's not so that you can help yourself. It's so that you can put people together and help them. It's an incredibly valuable skill. How valuable is it? It could make you president of the United States. Think I'm bullshitting? I'm not. Now, today this person is not really known as a great president or anything. But it, it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't really matter. It just matters that this person was able to get there. Okay? Think about, is there a position, especially like 80s, 90s, that is more powerful than POTUS? I mean, if you can get to POTUS with networking, maybe you can get some other shit done. It's not Reagan. It's not Clinton. 80s and 90s. And it ain't Bush Jr. That narrows it down, doesn't it? Bush Sr., Bush Sr. became president because of networking more than anything else. Bush Sr. never met a person professionally he didn't send a greeting card to or a thank you note to or something like that. Old school, thick-ass Rolodex. This is not putting him on a pedestal or saying he's a great guy. Nothing to do with it. If you, There was one of Harvey McKay's books on networking. He tells the entire story of how Bush Sr. rose through politics and industry through networking. Now, I don't think most people really want to be president. I think most people that most people that would make a good president don't want the power. 
in spite of a philosophy that says the exact opposite. Those who, who do not want power should not seek it. That's more advice than reality as to who would be good at it. But if you can use networking to become the President of the United States, not exactly the most charismatic dude, was he? Not exactly the smartest guy. Well, smarter than his son, but really, like, if you would have looked at George Bush Sr. in 1970 and said, is this guy cut out to be President of the United States? You would have said, well, look, the financial pedigree going back to Prescott and all the money and insider and Yale and all that. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's got the pedigree. But no. No, this isn't a guy that stands up and gives a speech people vote for. But if you can get enough people on your side, you can become successful at anything. That's what the man did. So maybe we should teach basic networking to our kids. Like, I don't really like Bill. What's Bill good at? Well, he's good at this. Maybe you should at least be decent to Bill since he's good at that. Well, I don't need that. Do you know anybody that does? See, now we're creating allies instead of adversaries. I'm not about using people either, if, you, if you're getting that from it. It's just a whole different way of viewing people. I try to look at every person I talk to, if they're not mentally ill, and even some that are, but in general, that's kind of my dividing point. Like, once I know you're mentally ill... I really can't spend a lot of time and effort working with you. I don't mean we disagree. I don't mean I don't think you're stupid about some things. I mean, like, legitimately, like, you need help. Like, you need professional mental help, right? You're off on some tangent of some weird thing that doesn't exist that you think is real. You're talking to people that aren't there. Anybody else, there might be some value in our relationship. I guess there are other people that are morally corrupted enough that I would put in that category. So rapists, pedophiles, right? You're on that list too. You go with the mentally ill people in the other category. Everybody else, hey, there might be some value in us having a decent relationship. Even if we are technically enemies, I still I would rather have a good relationship with my enemy than a bad one. Or my adversaries may be a better word. I'd rather have a good relationship with them. Because it might be the case that that adversary can become an ally over time. Not by design, but by happenstance. It's amazing when you help somebody who doesn't think you really like them, and you don't. They're like, well, why'd he help me? Why'd he help me? I, I, I literally had somebody call me one time and go, look, we're going to hire this guy. You know, we're going to hire this type of person. And the, co the company was a competitor of mine. It's okay. Go ahead. And they said, well, you know, they're going to be a key influencer in the, in the market. Okay. Can you recommend somebody? My first thought was, why the hell would I recommend somebody? I don't feel like reading my mind. The other guy on the other end of the phone was a pretty smart dude, and I knew him. I didn't actually, he, he wasn't an adversary, right, as a person. He was an adversary as a competitor. If he had moved to another company that wasn't a competitor, or he had come to mind, I would have gotten along great with the guy. He said, well... I, my biggest, this is a sales position. My biggest fear is I don't want to hire somebody that's out lowballing bids. It's bad for me and it's bad for you both. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you a name. Because if there's somebody that good, I want to go get them. But if you narrow it down to a short list, and I know one of them really is bad for both of us, I'll tell you. That ended up being a start of a very productive relationship.
a very productive relationship. That's networking. Maybe we should teach this to our kids. And, and the rich, see, the, like, here's the thing. All the shit I'm telling you, the rich do teach their kids. TX Homestead says, Ivy League schools generally promote networking very well. Yes, because the wealthy teach networking. The wealthy teach business operation. The wealthy teach financial literacy. The wealthy teach this stuff. That's how they got wealthy in the first place, and they want their kids to be wealthy too. I don't mean people with high-paying jobs who are cogs in the system. I mean the actual wealthy. They teach everything that I'm saying today. Next up, how to learn independently. Ah, you could see why the state wouldn't want to teach that in their schools that are designed to teach you shit that they want you to know the way they want you to know it. If an education does not teach self-learning, it's not an education, it's an indoctrination. So we think we're teaching kids to learn when I say, I want you to do a report on Thomas Edison. And then the student uses, in my day, the encyclopedia today, the Internet, to learn all about Thomas Edison. That's not self-directed learning. Self-directed learning would be, I want to learn this thing for this reason so I can do this thing with it, so I'm going to go figure out how to do it for myself. That's self-directed learning. Being assigned a thing, even like, okay, well, I'm going to give you so much freedom that you're going to do a report on science. Anything you can call science, you can do. Go. I'll give you it's better than saying do a report on Thomas Edison. So you can do a, a book report on anything off a list of classic American literature. It's better than saying, you know, do a, 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 a book report on the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. I'll give you it's better. It's like, again, we're making grades on perfect. It's still pretty low. What if I don't give a shit about classic American literature? I'm even okay with kind of saying you should know a little bit because there's a lot of context you'll gain from it. But what I'm really interested in is can you even figure out what you want to know and why you want to know it in the first place. The other thing that self-directed learning teaches is it's, it's the same way I explained reading to my granddaughter. She was struggling with some of her reading stuff because she didn't want to do the work of learning to sound out words. She's five guys, right? And she's doing first grade level work while she's supposed to be still in kindergarten. So it's a bit of a stretch. So I don't care how fast she moves. I just want her to try. And I explained that reading was a superpower. And the reason reading was a superpower is because no one could ever lie to her ever again. That if she could read, she could find out the truth about anything. And no one could ever prevent her from learning anything because if she wanted to learn something and she could read, she could find it out. She doesn't need to know all the other steps yet. She just needs to learn how to read. That's step one. And so no one can lie to you. No one can prevent you from learning anything. And if you want to like hear stories and be taken to other places and travel in your mind and explore possibilities, no one can stop you from doing that either once you can read. Well... That's how independent learning works, because it's reading plus independent learning that leads to this. Now, you can see why a school system that teaches you that a person needs a college degree and a straight certification to teach a kid to read C-Spot Run might not want that to be the case. So we'll just pretend it isn't, and we'll continue to teach the indoctrination program. So we should teach independent learning. Next, we need to teach people how to teach. If you can't teach a thing, you don't know a thing. Now, there's levels of mastery of teaching. Some people are master teachers. Some people are okay teachers. But a philosophy in the military is you don't know a thing until you can teach it. See it. Do it. Teach it. Master it. That's how I was taught. Basic things. 
how to disassemble and reassemble your rifle. I know it looks cool in a movie, but do you know why they teach you to do that? So when something goes wrong with it in the field, you can fix it. If it's fixable by the individual soldier, you will be able to fix it if you can just take it apart and put it back together because you know how it works. But how do they teach that? They show you how to do it. Then you demonstrate that you know how to do it. Then you teach somebody else how to do it. And then you have mastery over it. How to tie a Swiss seat for rappelling. Here's how you do it. Like an instructor literally goes, here's how you do it. Now do it. And you do it. You did it wrong or right. They correct you. Do it again. Now you've done it right. Okay, now you know how to do it, but do you? Now teach me. Pretend I'm stupid and I don't know. You verbally and mechanically at the same time instruct me to tie my seat. And then those tricky bastards, you know what they do? They make a mistake while you're teaching them. You're a freaking E-Zero private talking to a brown round drill sergeant who owns you, and he's screwing up. And you know what you're expected to do? Sergeant, I said this way. And now you know. We need to teach teaching. We should have, like, I remember when I was a kid, like when you were spacing out in school, well, if you think you know better, come up here and teach. And I'd walk up there and start fucking teaching. Instead of doing that to embarrass kids, we should have every kid in every class at some point teach. Not to embarrass them. And everybody's good at something. So maybe the kid that's really good at art comes up and teaches art, but he doesn't teach, you know, freshwater biology. But the kid that's really gifted at it, get him up there. Teachers collaborating with each other. I mean, this is how I'd fix the system if it were fixable. It's not. But if it was, that's what you would do. So, like, let's identify Bill Smith's expertise, the place he's most capable Let's give them the opportunity to learn the skill of teaching by teaching something he's comfortable doing. Well, you'd have a whole bunch of people who would come out of school understanding value for value exchange, having monetary literacy, understanding basic business operations, being able to defend themselves, knowing how to network, understanding self-ownership, paying less in taxes, taking good physical care of their body through nutrition, and they would be able to teach what they know to others. Gee, it sounds like we're obsoleting the state system of education, doesn't it? I don't know why they wouldn't want that. Then we need, once you know how to teach and learn independently, we need to teach you how to sell an idea to somebody else. Do you know how important this is? Do you know what selling an idea is? Hey, I want to go out on a date with you. Is selling an idea. And I don't care if it's the guy asking the girl or the girl asking the guy. Going on a date with somebody... Until it's done, is just an idea. So I ask you out on a date. Let's say I'm single. You look at my scruffy beard and my hat, right? I look like a redneck, and I am. I'm wearing this, like, joking T-shirt that says, Hello, my name is Essential. Maybe that turns you off a little bit. You think I'm some kind of a loser. Turns out I'm kind of a really successful podcaster, have a little bit of money, really successful, awesome life. I have to sell you on the idea of giving me a shot. You know that's selling an idea? I want to get into this college. That's selling an idea. I want a job. That's selling an idea. I would like to start up a friendship. Not romantic, just a friendship with another person. That's selling an idea. I would like to add you to my network. Not on LinkedIn by ticking a box, but I actually want you to see my number on your phone and go, shit, that's Jack. Pick up the phone. Or at least seriously listen to the voicemail I leave you and say, hey, 
If Jack needs this, maybe I should talk. That's selling an idea. Trying to get funding for a business you want to start. That's selling an idea. Almost everything that you accomplish in your life involves selling an idea. And we put exactly zero effort into teaching children how to do it. We actually teach them it's wrong. Kids go out and sell every day. They ask for a thing they want and they give you a justification for it. And what do we tell them? Johnny, that's rude. Right, Johnny, it's rude to ask for what you want, justify it, and expect that maybe the other party will do that. Now Johnny's 21 years old, go get a job. You've taught him it's wrong to do all the things necessary to get the job, to sell the idea of hiring him, and now you're like, why can't he get a job? I don't know. Now if you could sell an idea, that means that when you become well-versed in a thing, that you can explain a thing at a level that other people who otherwise wouldn't understand it would understand it, because you're educating while you're selling. That's why we have to teach you to teach first. And that would mean when you figure out there's a big problem in the world, Instead of going out and going, it's their fault and their fault and everybody be with me, you'd go out and still, instead you would give the solution. Not we should tax these people more or tax these people less. Not we need to sanction this group or we need to you know, reward this group or provide equity through some bullshit. You'd say, look, we have a problem. We have a problem. This group thinks the problem is X. This group thinks the problem is Y. No matter who's right. This is the common solution. This is how the solution works. This is why the solution works. And this is how you can do the solution without them. You don't have to ask for permission. Right? I'm worried about the environment. Then plant a garden. Here's a hundred reasons that it actually makes the environment better every time one person plants a garden. Have you planted your garden? No. Then you need to stop complaining about the problem until you've taken one step toward making it a little bit better. But I think the problem is X. And he thinks the problem is Y. If he's right, are we better off if you plant a garden? Well, yeah, but no. Okay. If you're right, are we better off if you plant a garden? Well, yeah, but okay. If we can get both of you to plant a garden, isn't that twice as good? And that's just an example, planting a garden, for instance. Well, yeah, okay, then let's do that. Oh, we might make something called progress instead of being progressive if we did that. You think... Uh, global warming is being caused by CO2, I don't agree. I think that everything other than taxing an invisible gas that we can come up with to solve that problem fixes all the problems I'm concerned about. I think it fixes the problem of waste going down our rivers in the form of runoff fertilizer into the ocean. If you're right, we need to do that. If you're wrong, we need to do that. We can agree on that, so let's stop doing that. I think digging coal out of the ground and allowing mercury to spill into our waters and come down in our rain into our oceans is bad. You think it's bad because you think it makes the planet warmer. I think it's bad because I think mercury's bad, okay? So we need to figure out how to use less coal. We can both agree with that. Taxing coal to use coal just makes energy more expensive. It doesn't actually reduce the use of coal. Because corporations understand something I've been trying to teach you guys for a long time. Punishable by fine equals legal for a fee. And, and a lot of these, these carbon trading schemes and stuff like that, right, all it is is formalizing a fine. It's making a fine not a fine. It's making it what it always was, an upfront cost of doing business. It gives it a sense of legitimacy. So if we can sell ideas, we become way too powerful to be controlled. And then we have a war of ideas 
Instead of a war of political tribalism, instead of a war of classes, instead of a war of races, we have a war of ideas. I think it might be the only productive war you can have is an open war of ideas. Now, when I say war, I don't mean shooting each other. I mean literally competing with your ideas against other ideas. And if we can take this and say, let's strip away everything, whose idea is most implementable with the least amount of risk and the most potential for return? Okay, there's a lot of bigger things we could do. Why don't we do this little thing that everybody could do first and see what happens? And then if it works, great. And if it doesn't, the risk is very small. We haven't altered the entire Western economy to try growing food in our backyards. Right? It's easy. Let's do that. Oh, shit, it worked. Hey, who had that idea? Right? Well, it was actually all these people. Hey, maybe we should talk to them about the next idea since their idea actually worked instead of making things worse. Well, this would not be good if you saw like a state. Right? So selling an idea. Next, we need to teach our children to value privacy again. Kids don't value privacy. Most adults don't. We live our lives online. We share everything that we do. And the way you teach a person to value privacy, the actual skill set is to teach them how their data can be used against them. So this would start out with something simple like don't talk to the police without a lawyer. You thought I was going to talk about Mark Zuckerberg, didn't you? Eh, we'll get to him. I would, I, once a kid is old enough that they can be articulate and be interviewed, they need to know if you are asked by a police officer anything beyond where's your mom, right? Where's your mom? Where's your dad? Can I help you find you? Like, cops don't always cause problems. Sometimes they're there to help. They see a kid alone. I don't want the kid to run away from a cop if he's lost. I want him to go to a cop if he's lost and say, my mom's name is, can you help me find her? This is the last place I saw. So with that under the rug, then, I want a kid to know, like, hey, can I talk to you about your friend? Where were you? Questions like that from law enforcement? I'm sorry, I need to talk to my parents and an attorney before I answer your question, sir. Eight years old, your kids should be able to say that shit. Even if they don't do it and they don't ever have to do it, if they can do it at eight, when they're approached at 28, they will. And they also need to learn this. Well, sir, do you know what kind of people talk to lawyers before they talk to cops or ask for a lawyer or whatever? The answer to that question is, yes, I do, sir, smart people. That's who does not speak to law enforcement without an attorney. You can look up some videos about this on YouTube if you need further convincing, but I have seen defense attorneys make very clear-cut cases that a completely innocent person better not talk to the cops in any sort of information-gathering thing like that without an attorney because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that you just placed yourself at the scene of a crime that you had nothing to do with, but now they've placed you at the scene of the crime. You just moved up to A on the suspect list. And if you understand that, then you understand all these breadcrumbs you're leaving on all these websites. You understand why Facebook is advertising the thing you talked about but didn't put on Facebook to you five minutes after you said it. And then maybe you think a little bit more about your actions. And you think about what you said. And you think about keeping your word to other people when you say you won't repeat a thing and you turn around and immediately do it. There are very few things that will make you dead to me in a relationship. Breaking your word is one of them. Taking you into my confidence and saying, hey, this is going on, I want your advice, for whatever reason, I've, I've trusted you. But I don't want it getting back to the other person because I think it would hurt their feelings or break my trust with them. And I'm sincerely, I'm not gossiping, I'm sincerely trying to help. 
That shit comes back to me. You are dead to me. You are dead to me. I will not have a thing to do with you because you don't value privacy. And I, you know, this is something I stay on my grandkids about all the time with tattling and shit like that. I tell my grandson flat out, you do that later in life, and one of your friends is going to walk up to you. And this is exactly what I say. He's going to walk up to you, and he's going to punch you in the mouth. And you will deserve it. You'll have it coming. Because there is no reason for you to do that. You think that's too tough? I just think it's reality. You know what got me on this kick? Somebody was talking about like fairy tales and shit, and I'm like, you know, real fairy tales are not white hat, black hat. They're grim. In fact, that's what they're called. Go read the real fairy tales if you want life. This whole, you know, met the handsome prince and live happily ever after that the mouse has been selling you? Bullshit. Bullshit. Consequences are real. And breaking trust has long-lasting consequences. Sometimes it's forgivable, sometimes it's not. Sometimes the action is forgivable. But you don't get to decide if the other party forgives you or not. All you can do is be contrite and apologetic and sincere and hope it would be better not to go there in the first place. When you value your privacy, you value the privacy of others. So one of the most important things about teaching privacy is not just protecting information that doesn't need to be out there, but so that you can be a good friend in the right circumstances and know that, hey, if I wouldn't want this put out about me, this other person probably wouldn't be either, and then we'll find a thing called empathy, which is severely lacking in today's world. See how this solves all these problems? You see why they wouldn't want to solve problems? What good is a government without problems? Right? Whenever you talk about reducing the size and scope of government, but what if? Well, well, then this would happen, and that would... So like, this, this construct of all these problems is how government and state is justified. Even if you're not an anarchist, I'm okay with you. I promise you, a minarchist society would be a hell of a lot better than the one we have now. I think it would reconstitute itself, but I would take a reset for a while, yeah. Yeah. But the state grows on problems. The state feeds on problems. The leech, once full of blood... Let's go only long enough to find a new host. All right? That's your state. Next, the value of your time. The value of your time. This goes back to what I just said. If you want someone to appreciate another person's thing, get them to appreciate it in themselves first. We think of people that are often, you know, they don't value other people's time, right? They're not concerned with other people's time. They're always late, etc. We think of them as narcissistic. And they are. But we don't know what narcissistic means. We think narcissistic means you love yourself. Narcissism is false love of self. I've never met a true narcissist. There's people with some narcissistic characteristics at times. And you dig deeper and see it's just misunderstanding. True narcissism. True narcissist. I've never talked to somebody who was a true narcissist for very long before discovering this person hates themselves. The person that doesn't value their own time properly doesn't value the time of others. When you say they, they do, what you're saying is they only care about themselves and what happens in front of them. But they don't. that doesn't mean they value their time because they're spending their time poorly. What do you say about a person that spends money poorly? They don't understand the value of money or they wouldn't do that. A person that spends time poorly and alienating people and pissing people off is a poor way to spend your time and your life force. 
So if you want someone to value the time of another being, they must first value their own time properly. And this can be taught by, and it's often taught by business self-help writers, but we don't teach it to kids. So it's only the people who go out and explore that learn it. If I could hire someone to do a thing, right? Let's say I could hire a person. I just hired a person to put some fencing up for me. The material is irrelevant because I would have to buy the material anyway. The labor in the job he did was about $600. It took him less time than it would take me. If I did it, it would have taken me 10 hours. So all I have to ask myself is, can I make more than $60 an hour? If I can, on a straight financial decision, I am better off paying him to do it. In fact, if I can make exactly $60 an hour, I'm better off paying him to do it. Well, how's that work? Okay, well, I spend the time making the $60 an hour. I have the $60 an hour. The thing also got done. Otherwise, I have to not make the $60 an hour while I do the thing. I'm in a double hole. Now, that's a straight mathematical equation that we could start with. But the other side of that is, if he can come here and do that, then that's his value. So when I ask him to do something else for me, well, that's his approximate value to me. That's what he's worth. So when he gives me a bid on a job, and it kind of works out about the same, he's being fair with me. He could go somewhere else and do it somewhere else, right? If it's not a good value, I don't need to hire that person again, right? But then I also start thinking, well, what is the value of the time of every person that I interact with? Because since I value my own time, this is a logical thing to think. If I think my time is worth this, then what are, what's their time worth? And when I say to that person, Bill, let's meet at this place at this time. I've now made a commitment. Every minute I'm late, I am spending his time that I committed to not spend poorly. I'll care if I value my time. I literally won't if I don't value my time. You can't Value your time and not value the time of another person. Not for real. You can do it artificially, narcissistically, right? Self-loathing, I'm important, grandiose, I'm more important than you, blah, 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 blah. That person looks in the mirror and they despise themselves. They always doubt themselves. They don't love themselves. You love yourself in the best way possible. Then you realize your mortality. Born, die, dash. That's my life force. That's what they're stealing from me with inflation. Hey, I, I need to spend it appropriately. And I need to be respectful of others. That's not real good for a system bent, built on problems and division. That's why they won't teach it to your kids. That's why you need to. Lastly, how to understand your power and its limits. The people of this world, specifically the Western world and our modern technology world, we've been taught that the things that are least powerful are the most powerful things that we have. And the things that are most powerful are best left ignored and not done. It's literally the upside-down clown world. So one of the things that they beat into your head in school is how important it is that you go vote. And you can vote for whatever clown you want to, and I won't even pick on you for voting if you do. Great. And sometimes there are better choices than others. Okay, I'll give you that. 
But the, the actual impact on your life by voting is minuscule to nothing. Especially if you live in a place like most of the United States where the people with the most power over you are local officials and the D or the, all, y, the, D or the R always wins by 20, 30 points. Your vote is meaningless. Mathematically, I'm sorry. It can be cathartic. You can feel good about it. You can tell everybody you did it. You can wear a little virtue signaling sticker that says you voted. But it actually didn't do anything. Now, I'm not picking on this directly. I'm saying, how many things could that person do that would have a bigger impact on their life that they're not taught to do instead? That There's nowhere near the effort goes into teaching them this power. Right? You know, if it's political, the most power that you can exert as one person is probably through the court system. Is there a legal challenge to this? Can I raise support and funding to sue the government? It doesn't always work. It's probably not the best use of your time. But you're more likely to make a difference with that than you are by voting. But do we teach that? Oh, no. Screw that. The person who says, well, I don't like the way things are here, right? I'll vote my way out of it. Well, good luck with that. I'll get a petition. Well, good luck with that. And sometimes it works. And if it if you do the calculus and you realize, like, here's an example. When I lived down in Arlington, if you went to a grocery store, you could not buy, at the time, beer and wine. Okay? They didn't have it. You had a beer store. You could buy beer and wine. You had liquor stores where you could buy beer, wine, and liquor. And a grocery store was a grocery store. So you might have to go to two stores. Like you wanted to pick up a couple cases of beer for a party, and you went to the store, and people were literally, because of this, driving to other jurisdictions so they could do their shopping in one place. Because it was less of a pain in the ass to drive one town over and go to Kroger and buy everything then go to Kroger and Bob's beer, beer Shack in their own city. So it was costing money, and the average person thought it was stupid. So people got together, they went to the place that they thought would actually embrace their idea. Who was that? The politicians? No! Politicians don't like to change the status quo, right? In removing regulation, it's a risk for no gain. That's the way they see it. But who would be like, you know what? I think that's a fine idea. How about the guy managing the Kroger store? Right? That knows he's losing revenue that he's judged on every week because people are going to Bob's Beer Barn or not going to Kroger at all, and they're going over to Grand Prairie to buy their beer and their wine. He's pretty receptive. So they went and had conversations, and they set up tables outside of all the Kroger's and Albertsons and Winn-Dixie's and all the other stores in town. And everybody that walked in, they said, hey, can I talk to you? And some people are like, screw off. And they're like, bye. And there are people like me, like, I don't do this, whatever. And my wife's like, hey, this is about beer and wine. Oh, wait a minute. What about beer and wine? Oh, we think they should be able to sell it here. Well, I think they should be able to sell anything here. I think they should be able to sell guns here. So, yeah, I'll sign that. So, even I will sign. They got freaking a ridiculous number of signatures. And when that was looked at, they were like, this is literally like 25% of the population because everybody goes to the freaking grocery store. So they got to talk to like everybody over time. And they're like, if 25% want this on a petition, this is some serious shit that we're standing in the way of. And all of a sudden they crumbled. 
That was power. And it was a very small number of people that affected that change. Because they put the lever in the proper place with the right fulcrum at the right time in the right way. You could have voted for that for decades. And it would still be that way down there. But they changed it. That's knowing your power. Now, it's also about um, knowing their limits. If something's really important to you, and the fulcrum and the lever are not right with the time, I live in this place. I want to do this thing. There is no effective way to get the change. What do you do? You accept the limits of your power. And the limits of my power are not, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do right now in this moment here. So what can I do? How about move? Sometimes the move doesn't have to be across the country to another state or even to another county. If I was really pissed off about that, now I wasn't that pissed off, but if I really was, I could have literally moved five miles and changed that for myself in that situation. That wasn't important enough to me. But when I decided I wanted to really homestead, one of my criteria anywhere that I moved was there better not be any prohibition against chickens. If people in this place don't want chickens, they have that right because they're HOA blue hairs or because their government decided it and they're not ready to change. I have to respect what they want. They live there. Okay? They live there. They get to choose how... If I say I value liberty, I have to value the liberty of the person that disagrees with my version of it. So I went somewhere where the problem didn't exist. That would be one way to understand the limit of your power, right? And the proper application of your power. Just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should. Is it right for me to force my will on other people who are peacefully living their life their way and not interfering with mine? And the answer to that is always no. So knowing how powerful you are, the limits to your power, when to change the application of your power, and when to self-restrict your power. I see people, plenty of times in my life I've seen people, this guy's a dick. And I think to myself in the back of my head, this guy never got his ass kicked because he wouldn't be acting like this if he did. And I look at the guy and I just do a basic evaluation and go, well, I could kick this dude's ass right now. I could go over to him and ask him which side of his head he wants to land on and tell him in advance what I'm going to do, and he can't stop me from doing it. Do you think I'd do that? Do you think I'd do that? No. Why? Because it's wrong. You're physically assaulting somebody. We all have thoughts about taking actions that we, like, it emotionally gives us some catharsis, but we know this is the wrong thing to do. That's a self-control thing. Right? But that's also understanding I do have this physical capability. Or I have this bureaucratic capability. Bureaucracy is not just in government. I'm sitting working for a company and I, have, I don't like what this person said and all I have to do is push a button and his post goes away. Just push a button his post goes away. Or push a button and he goes away. It's banned. You don't even have to have a discussion. Low level enough, I just don't like this person like a little ant. Gone. Well, that's knowing your power, but not having respect for it. Instead of engaging in that person with a discussion and having a war of ideas, I use the nuclear button. They're gone. 
How many places does that happen outside of social media and the online world where we focus on it today? Where somebody takes a power they have over another person and inappropriately applies that power to silence, shut up, injure, harm, damage that person. I've had employees, I could have destroyed their future career prospects. I could have made four or five phone calls, put out the alerts and say, this is what this asshole did here. And they would have found a job. I'm just setting that person up to have to move into another industry where they can cause the same problems and have animosity so they're not likely to correct that problem or end up, you know, destitute. Well, what I can do is say, you know, unless it's some serious crime that, you know, they, they belong in a leaf shredder. Like if I had somebody who was a pedophile, like they might just disappear. I'm saying I might even might not make a phone call there. But if they just really sucked... And I fire them, and I always tried to def I always tried to fire people with de decency and dignity, and sit down and say, "This is why it didn't work out. This is why we're setting you loose. This is what I think you should do in the future." And they always leave pissed. No one ever likes being fired. They always live convinced that they weren't wrong. I was, even though I was the one paying the bill. And that immediately makes you right as the employer, deciding I don't want this person to work here anymore for any reason, in my opinion. Now, they might go find an employer that doesn't feel that way. That's one solution. They might do the self-work. But what I've found is a lot of times I've had people that I did fire that I talked to them five, ten years later, and they said it was the best thing ever happened to me. I had to do some self-examination about why that happened, and I figured out I was in the wrong industry, and I did go to another industry. Or I needed to work on these things within myself. That's it, guys. I actually have a whole bunch more shows coming like this. We're going to talk on some higher levels. I mean, I'm going to talk about some things in some coming shows that are more like aha moments rather than individual skill sets. One that I have in my notes here, let me pull it up so I can look at it real quick. Here's one we'll be talking about in the future. When the And I know it's going to seem like a left turn, but it's really not. This is like, you should have gotten this foundation when you were a kid. And if you did, you'd really enjoy having conversations like I'm going to you know, bring up next. When something goes to a marginal cost of zero, it becomes free. I want to discuss concepts with you like that. So think about it this way. I just heard, about, I heard this in a podcast. I think it was on Pompeiano's podcast or it was on Peter McCormick's podcast. The guy said, if you think about like an application on a smartphone, like a calculator. People used to give good money for calculators. You don't go to the app store and find thousands of calculator applications for $2.99 a piece. Because everybody has one, the nominal cost of a calculator app on your desktop of your PC, desktop of your Mac, smartphone, whatever, is zero. So it became free. That's incredibly powerful. It changes the entire way that you'll look at economic systems forever if you think about it deeply. And I want to go deep into discussions with you guys like that. I, I want to continue to talk about the backyard basics, you know, growing your own food, bartering with your neighbors, building a business, but I also want to start taking things to another level on philosophy because what I just gave you today is a great framework for that. And that was the plan so that those of you that had kids, you might gain from this, right? You might gain from this directly because you didn't have it. Those of you that have kids, you have a whole new thing that you can start working on to teach your kids. To, people always say this, right? How many times have you heard, I want my child to have opportunities I didn't. Then dig the hole 
that you're going to pour the foundation into deeper and wider and thicker than was done for you. Don't try to hand your child an opportunity. Don't try to give them an opportunity. Don't try to tell them not to repeat your mistakes. Odds are your mistakes are part of why you're so badass today. Rather dig a deep, thick, real foundation. Pour them a foundation in reality. And let them be their own architect on top of that foundation. All right, so a few things people said while I was going through here today. Do you suggest any good books for improving negotiation skills? Um, I would say Harvey McKay's stuff. Anything by Harvey McKay is going to be really good at that. Is it Beckwith? I can't think of the guy's last name now. But whoever wrote Selling the Invisible. I can't remember the author, but the book was one of my kind of like Real aha moments, selling the invisible. Um, where do robotics come into play with that labor? So this is when we're talking about how labor is the money that underlies the currency of debt that is used to create the currency of dollars. Um, somebody still has to make the robots. Somebody still has to make the robots. And then we're going to go into, it's still a labor equation. It's interesting, though. What happens when you have robots that can mine the materials, refine the materials, and do the programming to make the next robot. You're talking about the obsolescence of human labor. That could be a sci-fi utopia or a sci-fi nightmare. I, I, I tend toward the other side, the nightmare side. However, I think the reality is that we're very, very far away from that. So the analogy I have for this one is back when I was in structured cabling, wireless networks really started to take off. And I, I imagine most of you have very few data cables in your house today. You probably have one that goes from your router to your modem and maybe your desktop computer, if you have a desktop, because why not? And then all your devices work wirelessly to that router, right? And you would think, well, why don't corporations do the same thing? I can't get into why. I'm just going to tell you they don't. And even as we started to just do wireless networking in that space, I remember one time we sat, I sat down with one of my mentors. This guy was switched on, RCDD, badass guy, taught me so much. And we were designing this network that was going to probably have more wireless in it than anything we had ever seen at the time. And this guy, Mark Johnson, all he said to me is, Jack, Don't these wireless networks have an awful lot of cables in them? And he was right. Like, so I think that that's how robotics is going to work. Like, these robotic networks are going to have an awful lot of humans involved in them. Uh, but it will eliminate jobs. That's not what I'm saying. But there's still going to be a big human quotient in there. Uh, Village 3 says, teach everyone to run their own business, and at least everyone has their own tax shelter. Yeah, that'd be good. And here's the thing. Not everybody's going to run their own business. As an entrepreneur, that's good. You can't have all your employees actually be outtasked entrepreneurs. If you run a company like mine, you can. But you're, you know, if you want to have the next great widget company and you're going to distribute a half a million widgets a year, it's even kind of a small number in a global market, you have to have people in it that are employees. When I order shit from Amazon or elsewhere, I expect that in a certain number of days or a certain number of hours that I'll look out at my gate and there'll be a box there And I'll go pick it up and open it up, and the thing I ordered damn well better be in there. But you feel the same way. You need people for that. And, you know, now we're having some out-taskers, you know, people that do, 
like DoorDash for Amazon, basically, that helped make that happen. Somebody put it in the box. Could be a robot at some point. There's humans in that equation. If nothing else, there's a human reviewing the balance sheet as an accountant. A lot of this can be automated, but there's still humans in it. We need employees to be entrepreneurs. The reason I want everybody to know how to be an entrepreneur is you have the option one. I think it's the first most important thing. If you ha if you know I could be an entrepreneur, I could build a big business, I could be a solopreneur, I could be a handyman, I could be anything in this space, or I can choose to go work for somebody. You've chosen to take a job. If you don't know that, you didn't choose to take a job. You felt that you had to. When you feel you have to do a thing, you always make bad decisions. You take the first job you get, you take the first offer you get, you take the first number they throw out in a salary. When you say, I'm choosing this, and boy, I learned this, when I got close to the end of working for people, holy shit, did people throw money at me. Like, when, when I could go into it, like, well, if you're not real keen on taking this job, why, why, why are we talking? I literally had somebody ask me that one time. I said, because you said you wanted to talk about it, and I always listen to people and hear what they have to say. I'm actually thinking about not working anymore. What? Well, you're like 30, right? Well, you know, I really don't have to work anymore. But I, I do like what you do. I, I am interested in the mission that you have. And I think maybe if we can work something out, I can help you. Holy shit! They start running an abacus to figure out how, what kind of bonus structure can we put together to get this guy. That's what happens when I don't need you. The more I need you, the more you own me. The less I need you, the more you owe me. Boy, there's a quote. Somebody write that shit down. I'll forget I said it. <laughs> write that one. Somebody write that down and email that shit to me. I'm going to forget I said that one. Please send me that one so I can go on. Um, Guy Incognito says, any plans to do a budget-conscious keto show soon? You know, I have a whole low-carb keto diet series I did on YouTube Back when I was losing the weight, I was actually giving my weight, telling you what I ate, and I did a whole episode on that then. Maybe I'll do it again, though, but here's the reality. How do you eat meat and fat less expensively? Use cheaper cuts of meat, go quality over cut, and think, right? So people say, well, you know, if I eat this meat, this is really lean meat, and I need more fat, and the fatty cuts of meat, are like, like ribeye, are more expensive. What happens when you fry it in butter, man? Right? <laughs> What happens when you go out and you buy a really good, high-quality beef tallow and you cook your food with the beef tallow? Like, what else is affordable, high in good fats? Not many plants, but avocados probably the best. Do you know what's less expensive than fresh avocados that go bad on you? Frozen avocados and pre-made mashed avocado like pre-made guacamole. Both of those things can be frozen. I didn't know this till I got into keto. I always thought if you froze an avocado, you had to mess it up. Turns out, nope. Freeze an avocado, unfreeze it, use it, doesn't change shit. Not enough to care. So all of a sudden I started doing things like I'd make a soup and I would blend avocado into it. Like immersion blender, right? Or make a guacamole and stir it into the soup and thicken the soup with it. And no, it doesn't taste like guacamole soup. It just adds to that rich, luscious, fatty characteristic of the soup. So there's lots of ways you can do that. Maybe we will go into it. Um, 
Serrano, Serrano, I guess is the name, how you say his name? Uh, Keto has sown a distrust for authority when those thousands of people have great results and have medical doctor tell them it's unhealthy, they start to question. I think that might be the most wonderful byproduct of keto. I am not going to say it is better than the health improvement in the lives of thousands, if not millions of people. You don't have your health, you don't have shit. You talk to someone who's chronically ill and doesn't have an option to change it, and you will feel like a human maggot for allowing your health to be detrimental when you can. That's how valuable health is. But the most important byproduct of keto living, low-carb living, all natural living. I don't even care like when it's Whole30 and shit like that. If it's not full-on keto. I don't care. But when people eat food that the medical establishment says will kill you, and it makes them healthy, and it cures their ill elements and diseases... When that happens, they say, I'm not listening to you anymore. Clearly, you do not know what you're talking about or you're malicious. It's, you're incompetent or you're malicious. right? But once they do that, they say, okay, now I have to fix it for myself. So I need higher quality food. So then they go down the rabbit hole. They start looking for you know, regen agriculture uh, food. They start Growing it for themselves, they learn about growing it, everything. But they also start saying, well, like, well, what else are you lying about? And that's why it leads to things like homeschooling and all the other stuff we talked about today. Absolutely. You're dead on, man. That's, that's great. Um, what about peacekeeping projects in the 70s and 80s? Are familiar with the power of intention? Uh, peacekeeping projects, I don't know what you mean. When I hear peacekeeping, I think of us sending our military to another country on a peacekeeping mission, and I think that's generally not worked out well. So I think you're talking about something else, and I don't try to talk about things that I don't know, so I'm going to let that go. Christopher says, Jack, you jerk. My girls love Excellus homeschooling. I spent almost two years struggling to work and teach them, and now they complete school as I garden and do housework, and we discuss as needed. Yeah, me too. One of my best friends I've ever had in my life, and probably my best friend that I have today, was over at my house last week. And he said, if you had never done anything at all for me, other than turn us onto Excellus for my son, then this relationship is gold. That's how powerful that educational model is. That's why I'm such a fan. I don't get paid by them. They don't have an affiliate program, whatever. Um, It's Excellus University, A-C-E-L-L-U-S is how you spell it if you're not watching the video and you can't see it on the screen right now. It's amazing. And if you sign up for it, let me tell you how to save a bunch of money. I'm going to give you value for value right now because it's so valuable, it doesn't make sense that it would be this easy. When you go to Excellus.com, you'll find out signing your child up for Excellus is not super expensive, but it's not cheap. It's $250 a month. That's some money. Now, you can take all the curriculum without the help and the support and the grade transcript and everything for free. They have a way to do that, too. If you want the program, which is, to me, where the biggest value is, then you want to buy it. I believe in tendering value for value, and the value Excellus has is huge. How would you like me to tell you to go from $250 a month to $80 without an MSB discount on the Excellus Website, you will see a thing that says the Roger Billings Scholarship. This sounds complicated. It isn't. You sign your kid up for it. They watch a video for an hour a week. They have to make a comment on it to prove they were there and they watched it. It's a great video. It will stretch the young and it will bore the old because it will speak to both of them. 
There'll be segments where it's really kind of geared more toward the younger student, segments that are more toward the older student. That's fine. One-room schoolhouse. Your bill will go from $250 a month to $80 a month. Yes, it's that simple. And people that go, well, I can't afford that for my two kids go, I can afford that for my two kids now. And they, I've had people email me and go, are you sure? Yes, I am, because it's what we do. Honestly, I felt the same way. When we signed our grandkids up, we contacted a seller. We're like, really? Is, is this really what it sounds like? And they're like, yep. So on the occasions that, that our kid, grandkiddos can't watch it here, like our deal with their parents is you make sure they watch this video and they comment or you pay the difference in the bill. It's never happened once. And it's a great video. And I'll tell you what they're doing with it. This is awesome. The founder of Excellus is a guy named Roger Billings, hence the Roger Billings Scholarship. And when anybody says anything about it, well, you know, this is school. Where they you know, the guy invented the hydrogen car, the personal computer, and gigabit Ethernet. Did, did the people that run your school do that? No, then shut up. Right? The, the, this curriculum is used in over 6,000 public schools right now, so teachers don't have to work. So is your school being, you know, syndicated to 6,000 other schools? No, then shut up. Okay? But one of the other things this brilliant man did, he created something called the National Academy of Science. If you could pay to go to the National Academy of Science, it's, a, it's an education worth about $30,000 a year. You cannot. If you get into the school, you go to school for free, and they have a working in your major rate of 96%. 96% of graduates graduate with a degree and work in the degree field. Now, it's all STEM. It's like seven different paths. That's all there is because it's the National Academy of Science. To be able to do this, you have to have like a lot of donation alumni money. You have to have people willing to write big checks to pay tuition for students. So what do those people want? Well, they want their name on a building. No, they want to know that their investment is well Founded. You have to have a top tier of candidates coming into your school that are going to do well. This scholarship program that cuts your bill is priming that STEM pump. A student that watches these videos through their whole you know, young life as they go through school is more likely to qualify and apply. Not all of them, but the number go up. Number go up is good. That's why they set it up. That's, they didn't tell me this. I just looked at the whole system, and that's that's kind of how I see things. Uh, next up, from Eka Mouse, Jack, Army, see the world and always have a plan to kill everyone in the room. Yes, yeah, somewhat. I have to say, like, I really hate what's being done with our military today. I'm also going to say something very positive about the military. It saved my life. Now, I don't mean I would be dead today, though I could be. And I'm not going to say that I didn't do some stupid shit due to soldier programming that might have risked my safety or my life. I'm saying I was on a very bad path when I joined the United States Army. My family life was a freaking train wreck of destruction. I lived in a small coal town that is today probably worse than it was during the Great Depression. It's now riddled and filled with heroin and meth. It is a beautiful horrible place. It's a sportsman's paradise, but most people aren't sportsmen. They're laying in the streets, shooting up. And most people I went to school with that still live there, their life is a train wreck. And I was worse than them at the time. I was not on good footing. 
The army for me, you know, there's an old cadence. Got a letter in the mail, go to war or go to jail. And there's a lot of stories about, well, the judge said I could either join the army or go to jail, right? Those are two different things because the first one, the, the Jody calls about a draft. Um, but the idea of you go to jail or you go to the military. I wasn't directly in danger of going to jail, but that was my future. The army gave me a sense of purpose. It taught me discipline. It reined me in, and I had some very good officers and non-commissioned officers in the short time that I was in. And I can't, I can't say bad things about the military as a thing as a whole, because I know full well it was my path. Today's military, I mean, we're talking 30 plus years now. I don't know that it's the same. In fact, I know that it isn't. But there is something about having a belief that what I do is bigger than me. And not everybody needs the military for it. Most people don't. Some people do. And it might be the right path for the right people. Uh, this one wasn't in all caps, but I, I, I put it up anyway. Just to, I'm not going to pick on, on, on Harton here. But he made a quote that's wrong. But I, I only bring it up because of the superpower thing. He says, the quote is, We know God loves us because he made beer. Ben Franklin, wow, wow, wow. The truth is, the quote is not exactly that, but it's basically that. But it's about wine. It's about wine. Our founders drank a hell of a lot more wine and a hell of a lot more cider than they did beer. And there's reasons for it. It doesn't mean they didn't drink beer or make beer. Franklin, Jefferson, and Washington not only made beer, they exchanged recipes. But the famous quote is a mis misquote that's actually about wine and how that relates to the superpower. With the magic of internet search, you can find out if Jack Spierko's telling you the truth or not. Because I want to end with one thing today. And we'll go back over and maybe there's another comment or two, but I, I think we're done. We're at two hours. Um, you shouldn't trust anybody. You shouldn't trust anybody fully. Especially with power. So I hear people sometimes like, well, you're on this social media platform. Do you trust them? No. I don't trust them. I don't trust the person. I have, again, a scoring system. I trust them more. What I trust is the system. Like, if I put these things together and put a match to it, I will get a fire. And if I do it wrong, I won't. And if I do this thing to a fire, it will go out. And if I do this thing to a fire, it will grow and be dangerous. I trust systems. I don't trust people, and you shouldn't either. You shouldn't trust me. All right? And I'd like to believe that I'm trustworthy, but I know that I'm not fully trustworthy. I know that you aren't either. I know that nobody is. I know that you put somebody in a position where you give them enough power, sooner or later they will use it to their own preference. I know that no matter how hard I try to put principle over preference, That even if I don't fail, I always have the potential to fail. There's always a possibility to fail. So how do you build trust? You do the best you can, every time you can, in every way you can. And when you fuck up, you own it. That's the bonus. That's the last one for you to teach your kids today. And for those of you that are offended by the F word, get over it.
Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I will catch up with you tomorrow with something totally, or maybe similar, but yet different. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out, or just run you around? They said you should have a house, the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.